We were in Charleston for two days and two nights with two of our dearest friends. What could be better? As we checked in, the front desk clerk offered a complimentary upgrade to a spacious two-bedroom suite that would make things more comfortable with two couples, so we heartily accepted. Wonderful, she replied. You'll be in 359. We were perplexed when we reached the third floor, however. Our suite didn't seem to exist. We eventually found the elusive 359 not present on any hallway directions, but when Eric went to open the door, he stopped short. Did you hear that? Cut it out, I scolded, expecting this sort of banter on a trip to what's reported to be one of the most haunted cities in the country. But Jeff, a science guy, not prone to superstition, retorted, I hear it too. We all got quiet and listened as something or someone knocked from the inside of the door. Our eyes got big as we chuckled, ooh, haunted. Then Eric put the key card in and quickly pulled it out. The light turned green, the handle turned, but when he tried to push it open, he couldn't. It was as though someone was resisting him from the inside. When we made our way in, no one was there. More tickled than afraid, we decided to stay and share suite 359 with whatever ghost haunted there. Teresa jokingly decided his name was Paul, since on every painting was the autograph of someone named Paul. We asked Paul to watch over the place as we headed out on a self-guided walking tour that led us from the pineapple fountain at Waterfront Park, past the old exchange, and down Rainbow Row to the Battery. We continued walking, eating, and drinking our way through Charleston for two perfect days, sleeping soundly in between. Paul may not have wanted to let us in, but he seemed harmless, so far. Our second night in Charleston, we walked across town to the old jail. None of us had ever been, but we'd read the history, how thousands had perished between 1802 and 1939, when the federal government finally shut it down due to inhumane conditions. Many had been hanged at the infamous gallows, but countless more died from neglect and disease, crammed inside the filthy, infested fortress that had been intended for a fraction of the prisoners it housed. We were part of a rather large tour group, which was annoying at first, but as soon as we entered the first room of the old jail, I forgot about them. The guide also became irrelevant. I barely heard his well-rehearsed counts of torture and death, or his tales of Lavinia and the other ghosts. I was overcome by the space itself. At first, I chalked it up to claustrophobia. It was pitch dark after all, save for a few safety lights. But looking back, it was more than that, an oppressive feeling. I didn't fear I could become trapped within this maze of concrete and iron. I felt like I already was. When we reached the last room, I hung out in the doorway as I'd done all evening, unable to fully enter. The guide coaxed, come on in, I'm gonna close this door. You're going to what? Close it, you'll have to come in or stay out here by yourself. Whether it was pride at not wanting to seem chicken or the fear of being left alone, I entered the small windowless room and let him close the thick, heavy door behind me. He then began to explain that this room had been the asylum. Nope, big nope. I was about to get the hell out of there when he turned off his flashlight, plunging us all into complete darkness. Some screamed. I didn't. I couldn't breathe. When he turned the flashlight on, his face met mine, glaring as I whispered, open the damn door. 
other than my near panic attack and a little kid on a creaky bicycle scaring us half to death as we left the premises, not much actually happened at the jail. It was fun in an ominous, horrific sort of way, but uneventful. But as we examined our photos later, Eric noticed something. This was taken from the doorway of an empty dark room with no flash. None of us can explain what we see here. A trail of movement? Nothing could be seen with the naked eye. After a late walk and one last dessert, we arrived back at our suite. This time, Jeff unlocked the door and had the same experience. The handle turned, but something, or someone, was pushing against the other side. After forcing our way in, we chuckled a sheepish thanks to Paul. Exhausted, I announced that I was taking a bath. The bathroom had two doors. One opened out to the hall and one opened into our bedroom. I started filling the tub, then closed and locked the door to the hall. I specifically double-checked that it was tightly closed and locked, then went through the other door into our bedroom. I made sure that hall door was also closed and locked, allowing me to move between our bedroom and the bathroom with privacy. Then I stripped naked, gathered my toiletries, and walked back into the bathroom. The door to the hall, the one I'd locked, the one I double-checked, was standing open. I screeched as I wrapped myself in a towel and ran out the main room, demanding to know who had opened the door but they had no idea what I was talking about. I quickly realized it was impossible for any of them to have done it. First of all, we aren't the kind of people who go around opening doors on potentially naked friends, but even if one of them had forgotten I was trying to bathe, there was no key. And the only other way in was through the bedroom, where I'd been the whole time. The only other explanation was that I'd unwittingly left the door open myself but Eric can attest that I'm meticulous about locking bathroom doors. I do not like to be taken off guard while in the tub. I know that I not only closed and locked that door, but checked behind myself, attempting to pull and turn the knob to make certain. And now, it was open. I continued with my bath, trying not to think about it. I mean, say there was a ghost or spirit named Paul or otherwise. Surely they didn't mean any harm. It was more intriguing than scary, right? Until time to wash my hair. Perhaps it was just the natural vulnerability of not being able to see or hear, but a sense of dread came over me as I closed my eyes and submerged my head under the bathwater. It was the same oppressive, trapped feeling I'd experienced in the jail. I hurried to rinse and dry myself, eager to rejoin my husband and friends. None of us could explain what had happened any more than we could explain the force pressing back against us as we tried to enter the suite. Driving home, we all agreed that it had been a perfect Charleston getaway. The best of friends, ideal walking weather, amazing food and drinks. The tour of the old jail didn't disappoint either. But the real treat, if we can call it that, was the unexpected upgrade to a spacious two-bedroom suite, complete with its own personal ghost. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. <laughs> I'm Michael Tatum, and this is Ghoul Intention. Uh, we were just having a conversation we, about whether or not you would you prefer a bath or a shower right. if you thought the hotel room was haunted. Yes, Michelle sent this story, and thank you, Michelle. So Michelle awesome. and Eric are friends. They're amazing humans, and I adore them, and they sent me this story and were messaging me about this Charleston trip, and I was like, fucking tell me everything. And so I'll put some of those pictures online, but... 
Um, <laughs> the, the streak one is really cool. Uh, but yeah, the first thing I said to her was like, how the fuck do you take a bath in a hotel that you know is haunted? To which my response was... The hotel room specifically. Yeah, to which my response is like, I mean... Because it's uh, in a shower, there's too much noise. I can't hear someone sneaking up on me. Right. In a bath, I can. I mean, there are advantages to both positions. I'm just saying. Right. In a, in a in bath, my like, mind, you have to get up and run, whereas you're already in a like halfway in a running position when you're standing up in the shower. Right. My thought is with a the bath, there's two things. One, um, every little sound is gonna make me jump, unless I have music on or something, right? <laughs> right, right so that right. listening thing is bullshit. It doesn't work for me. And then the second one is every movie, somebody goes under the water and they come up and someone grabs them from behind or pulls them and their feet fly in the air. Some shit like that is gonna happen. I don't want that to happen. But to in me. a shower, like the classic shower scene from Psycho. Yeah. Like, how do I, it, you know, I mean. You well, that's it. why you want how does that not the glass you? door is the that's even worse. possible option. Glass oh no, door, I like something just door. crunches through. Yeah, but they're going to hurt themselves if they crunch through. So this is the picture. What it is is a pretty oh. dark picture with just a white streak across oh, that's it. that's creepy. And you would think it was dust if there was any light, but there wasn't any. That's creepy. So it's pretty creepy. creepy. Um, I think we'll probably just make that the cover photo of the episode. That's a good one. So, uh, but yeah, woo! It's a good story. I like it. I love Charleston. Like Charleston's such a beautiful so city. So I want to go back there again so bad. Me too. Yeah. We should How many go... times have you been? Just the ones. Just the ones. But I we think... should go and meet Michelle and Eric and do yeah. a ghost hunt. Yes. I've been on two ghost tours. Yeah. Because I've been twice. And um, one ghost tour was like really fun. The other ghost tour covered much of the same ground, but our tour guide was over it. Yeah. <laughs> he was so well, like, so anyway, here, this thing happened. And it's like, people say this. And we were like, right. we're not It's exact. all bullshit. Most I wasn't of the exactly. Tours, yeah. Most of the tours are bullshit. I mean, because I did two tours I, I my one trip. The tour guides that like at least make you know perform for you. Right. The if they're gonna lie, like, make an effort to lie. Yeah, it's like don't don't yeah. don't act like my barista at Starbucks. Come on, yeah. like we're, we're gonna Spell be together for the next right. couple of hours. You know, like <laughs> yeah. like make this as engaging as possible. Exactly. Um, exactly. <laughs> What's well, our today's a special episode, Jamie? It is a special episode. Because it's our sixty-nine. Sixty-nine episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so what's our title? Today's title is from um. Oh, uh, hold on. I gotta open it. Okay. Today's title is called Nothing Kinky. <laughs> It's from uh, Eric by Terry Pratchett. And the line is, mm. just erotic, nothing kinky. It's the difference between using a feather and using a chicken. <laughs> now, we would not be ourselves if we had not <laughs> jumped That's on that. That's a great fucking line. <laughs> it is. It's the difference between using a feather and, <laughs> and using a chicken. <laughs> it totally makes sense. <laughs> God, I miss Terry Pratchett. Yeah, oh. um, so good, so good. Oh. And we will have, okay, so we have... A live show, real quick announcements. Live show mm. uh, will be Friday at 6.15 in Dallas. If you're going to the My Hero convention, yeah. that's where that is. Um, Super cool. Yeah, so that'll be really fun. And by the time this airs, we'll have done the Laredo convention. We're very excited about that. Yeah, we'll do um, But Oh, sorry, Saturday night at 6.15. Uh, Saturday night uh, at, in, in Dallas. Dallas. At the My Hero convention Sweet. at 6.15. 
will be Ghoul Intentions Live. Yeah. And so we're really excited about that. We're going to be talking about something in Dallas that mm -hmm. we love to talk about. And so that we know wait. very well. That's true. We've had we... some experiences with ourselves. That's right. So if you are local or in the area, please come. If you yes. if you want to just, you know, come anyway, you should totally come. It's Do it. be a good time. Do it. Um, but we're very excited about those. And so those are our first announcements. And I think our only announcement. <laughs> We're keeping it simple. That's right. But that's that's right. a good thing. Oh, so, I love it. Um, you are starting us. Yeah, today, nothing, Mark. nothing kinky, nothing kinky. Nothing it's kinky. just uh, I'm just doing uh, the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. Okay, that sounds kinky. <laughs> it's a little kinky. It sounds yeah. like there's a lot of farting involved. Well, um, we'll get that to that. One of <laughs> One of the things I do that will never not make Jack lose his mind laughing <laughs> is this fart noise I've been doing for years. <laughs> and it's this. <laughs> it, it kills him every it's time. It's such a specific fart. It's like you're taking the SAT you can and someone's sitting in those, like, like, you know, laminated chairs. Mm -hmm. And that's the sound of a fart. Yes. sneaking out of someone's ass crack yeah while they're trying to like take a test it's i don't know there's yeah. every fart tells a story it does it does every fart tells my a story favorite fart as noise. my father would say it's just it's just a duke <laughs> it's just a duke honking for right of way <laughs> oh my god What's your God. favorite fart noise that you make? Um, oh, I don't have one that I make, but I like, <laughs> I, I can't do it. I'm not as, I'm, well, I can, but I need help. Brandon has to be here and I have to make it on his stomach. Oh, like yeah. I have to like put my mouth to his stomach and just be like, Brr, and his, the, the combination of like his stomach tensing up from being tickled and then mm -hmm. like laughing. So he loosens it up, just makes it so realistic. It makes true. it sound like my favorite type it's of slappy. fart. An old man slappy fart. Slappy <laughs> the fart. ones that just sound like someone's playing the bongo drums from the inside yeah. of your shorts. Yeah. Like <laughs> my grandfather, slappy. my grandfather had those farts and they were, they never failed to kill. Like they, <laughs> yeah. and, it coming out and staying around. Did it was like, we laugh and then we cry. Did I ever, did I ever tell you the story about that lady that farted at like it was an, a friend. Okay, so my grandparents' friend's mom, <laughs> they wanted me to walk her to the restroom, and because she was older, so I walked her and I waited for her. And the like, she farted for five minutes straight. <laughs> like, the worst, like, raunchiest. <laughs> I have two brothers, but these like, farts these were, were like like someone had opened a tomb. Yeah, I remember it, and it was high school. I remember these farts. <laughs> I can hear them still. And then she was a sweet little old lady. And she came out and she washed her hands. And we're walking back and she grabbed my arm and she patted me. And she goes, thank you so much. I just had to get rid of a little gas. And I was like, a little? <laughs> I didn't say that. Madam, you could live off the grid with that natural supply. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> I had a great, great and cousin some family member we were staying at her house and it was in alabama and um i'll never forget it because my brother and i who were a little at the time were like at her kitchen table eating cookies while like the adults were about their business and she came to answer the phone the wall phone next to where we were sitting and she's a tiny little woman tiny little woman and she's cute. her name was annie matt and she comes up and she answers the phone and she's like hello this is annie matt and then just ripped one <laughs> i mean real loud like right yeah. like like the kind that just sort of comes out the back of you like cannon fire, like, and, yeah. and it was right at my brother and I, like we were right in the path yeah. <laughs> and, and my brother, it's been 30 years and my <laughs> yeah. brother and I, we could still be like, hello, this is Eddie Matt. We both start cracking <laughs> up. Like we're triggered by that. My, uh, my dad would always, <laughs> his little 
poop, poop, poop farts. You know what I mean? There was, <laughs> yeah. poof, he, would, poof, poof. he would always hop around and then be like, oh, <laughs> and there you go. It's barking spiders. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He'd always jump my around gra- like there's My grandfather would always be like, what's that? <laughs> I can't believe. Okay. But that's not what this is no, about. <laughs> I mean, it could yes. be. I don't know. They never did solve the mystery to my satisfaction. So Sparking maybe it spiders. was the that's mad the farter of Matoon. <laughs> okay, okay. You have the mad gasser of Matoon and the mad farter of Falwell. All right. So my sources are uh, Wikipedia, a wonderful article written about this in 40 and Times from like the late 90s when I used to subscribe to that magazine. I still have a copy. Um, <laughs> a podcast called The Skeptoid, uh, a YouTuber by the name of Cryptic, who I think uh, has done a bunch of, I really like his style. Mm-hmm. And the, infogra- uh, the infographic show, there's a few no- uh, books I shall uh, reference while we're going. Um, it's a fascinating case. Have you ever heard anything about it? No. All right. Obviously, I went into fart. It's talks. actually it is such a it is such an interesting case that it has its own. It is one of the only such cases of its kind to earn to have its own academic paper written about it. Wow! Uh, here in the U.S., anyway. So uh, let's just jump right into it. So right. with the population clocking in at fewer than nineteen thousand as of the last census, which I believe was done in two thousand ten, Mattoon, Illinois, isn't exactly a bustling metropolis. Its only real claims to fame are. Get this, a Burger King completely unaffiliated with the fast food chain we all know and love. I don't Mm -hmm. know how that works. And one of the most bizarre cases of weirdly specific mass hysteria in recent memory. If indeed mass hysteria it was. Well, isn't that the way mass hysteria goes? Right. Well, (laughs) so let's go back, shall we? August 31st, 1944. Okay. This is in the middle of World War II which sure it was going on a whole ocean away, but there was still a lot of anxiety about, you know, spies and saboteurs coming to our mm-hmm. shores here. Um, and bear in mind that that Mattoon, while not a large town, did have a big munitions plant uh, uh-huh. that was, of course, spiking up production for the war effort. So, you know, there were, there was, and, and just a few years prior to this happening, there had been straight up Nazi and Japanese saboteurs caught in Florida trying to, you know, take down the industrial right. complex. So just that's kind of the the, the backdrop. Mm-hmm. So on August 31st, 1944, a man by the name of Urban Rafe awoke in the wee hours to a noxious odor pervading his home. Now, no sooner had he noticed the smell than he grew weak and fell to vomiting. Ooh. Now, fearful that the pilot light had gone out and was filling their house with carbon monoxide, Urban's wife attempted to check, but found she was paralyzed. <gasps> now, fortunately, the, uh, the pair did recover, though no apparent cause for the incident could be found. Did she ever learn that you can't smell carbon monoxide? Well, this that's the thing. This was around the time when uh, um, natural gas companies were beginning to put additives into the supply so, so that it. you could smell yeah. if there were a leak. Because leaks were fairly common. Mm-hmm. Pilot lights go out, and then there's just fucking gas coming into your home. And if you're asleep... Now, also, bear and in gas mind... Gas used to power everything, too. It and, wasn't And it just, still powers quite a bit. Yeah. But, I mean, at that... And people didn't have ACs back then. Yeah. It wasn't a popular thing. So most people also just lived with their windows open. Yeah. And they had screens and stuff. But, you know, people didn't really lock their doors much. Not in not in small towns, anyway. Right. And Not in Mattoon. Not in Mattoon. Now, later that same night, a young mother living nearby, just up the road, in fact, whose name, uh, alas, no longer survives for the record, was roused by the sound of her her little daughter in the throes of a coughing fit. 
As she got up to check, she remarked a sickly sweet smell filling the home and was unable to lift herself out of the bed. Mm. She was essentially paralyzed from the waist down. As with the wraiths up the street, the young woman and her daughter survived relatively unscathed, but were baffled as to what could have caused this episode. Now, around 11 p.m. on September 1st, 1944, housewife Dorothy Kearney had just tucked her children into bed and was about to call it a night when she noticed a strange, sickly sweet odor hanging in the air. Now, surely she thought it was just a flower bed beneath her bedroom window making a brave showing in the early autumn, but... <laughs> Um, <laughs> as, but as the scent grew stronger, her limbs began to tingle and feel heavy. The tingling sensation in her lower body slowly gave way to complete paralysis from the waist down. Unable to get out of bed, Dorothy called out to her sister, who happened to be asleep in the next room that night. The sister came running in, was also struck by the smell. She assessed the situation and put a sleeve to her mouth and immediately called police. Mm. Uh, Dorothy regained her, mobili her mobility by the time the police arrived, but... No explanation. The odor was gone, dissipated, yeah. and the effects were gone. The police had no answer for what the hell was going on. Later that night, Mrs. Kearney's husband, Bert, returned home from his shift as a taxi driver, and as he was pulling into the driveway, was startled to see a tall, gangly-looking man in dark clothes and a, quote, tight-fitting hat peeping into the bedroom window. Uh-oh. Mr. Kearney got the hell out, gave chase, but the prowler eluded him. Again, police were called, and again, they found nothing. Uh, I think they may have found some footprints in the dirt mm -hmm. near the window, but that was it. Four days later on September 5th, Carl and uh, Balua Cords, uh, C-O-R-D-E-S, maybe Cordes, uh, returned home after a lovely evening out to find a white rag mysteriously crumpled near the screen door of their porch. Now, curious, Balua picked up the cloth and gave it a sniff. Almost immediately, mm. she grew violently ill and started vomiting. Her lips swelled, wow. her throat burned, she lost feeling in her legs. When police called to the scene, took a whiff of the cloth themselves, however, they suffered no ill effects. They did, however, apprehend a shady-looking fellow about a block up the road and brought him in for questioning. More on him in a bit. The courtesans felt the rag had probably been left on their porch by this guy to incapacitate the family dog, who often slept just on the other side of the screen door, kind mm. of a guard dog. Searching their property, uh, once the, the bout of semi-paralysis subsided, Balua found an antique skeleton key, which looked like it had been used quite a bit. Um, and for those of you who don't know what a skeleton key was, back in the old days before locks were quite as high-tech as they are now, uh, it was possible to get a master key that was capable of overwriting all the tumblers in a lock. So mm -hmm. it's called a skeleton key because it pretty much opened every key yeah, in a house. Yeah, it's like a master key. Basically. And and some of them worked on any house or on yeah. any various houses. Luck of the draw. Um, they found an antique skeleton key and a tube of lipstick on the sidewalk not far from their porch. Now, uh, police forensic chemist John Sutter conducted a series of tests on the rag and found no trace of anything harmful, though he consented in his report that the offending chemical might have evaporated in transit. There are, after all, certain chemicals that behave this way. The man brought in for questioning was released, having no evidence against him, and he said he was just walking around. Perhaps, though, it was the fact that he was let go. Eh, it was no coincidence that the following night so, saw no less than four such gas oh. attacks. And now, approximately 9 p.m. on September 6th, two hours after seeing a strange figure skulking around the outside of her home, Glenda Hendershot's 11-year-old daughter fell violently ill. At 10 p.m., Miss Ardell Spangle was overcome with a sickly sweet smell and lost the use of her lower extremities for a short time. Around midnight that same night, restaurateur Laura Junkin hacked through a miasma of what she first thought was someone's cheap-ass perfume <laughs> while entering her own apartment and quickly found herself unable to walk. 
Um, she'd been in the habit of leaving her window open, as most people did, in a few inches uh, while she was away at work. This, it was later presumed, was the quote-unquote gasser's method for letting in his noxious concoction, whatever the hell it was. Hmm. This, this was confirmed when not long after, and we're still on the same night here, a 60-year-old man by the name of Fred Goebel literally saw someone pumping fumes with a manual fumigator, what's called a flit gun. Hmm. It's like one of those things you see in cartoons where like, shh, shh, oh, shh. Yeah. looks kind of like a bicycle. Yeah, it's like a bicycle pump. Same, same right. thing, same, yeah. same principle. And, uh, it's, you know, uh, back in the day, uh, fumigators and like, <clears throat> pest control people used to use it for yeah. all sorts of things. Isn't it and used for fire to the... You're thinking of a bellows. Oh. That's different. The little cord, that's a bellows. This was a, a flit gun. It looks like a bicycle pump and it's like, like a caulking gun. Have you ever seen a caulking yeah, gun? It's yeah, like yeah. that. Okay. But it's just got a little pump in the back, then shit comes out the front. It's really old-fashioned. Okay, yes. yeah. Um, so we were doing a lot of hand gestures <laughs> just now. For those of you who can't, yeah, we're just, yeah. Just a lot of... Yeah. Nothing kinky. Nothing kinky. Uh, so this was, okay, so she's your old friend. Just <laughs> <laughs> Just the feather, not the chicken. Literally saw someone pumping fumes with a small manual fumigator into his apartment through an open window. Within seconds, Fred grew ill. His wife, beside him on the bed, experienced nothing. Fred's neighbor, Robert Daniels, told police he'd seen a tall, thin man scuttle away from the gobble's window and into the night. By September 9th, newspapers were having a field day. A crazed gasser was on the loose in Mattoon, roaming the neighborhoods in black, nondescript clothing and releasing some unknown paralytic agent into unsuspecting citizens' homes. Uh, Mattoon gets jitters from gas attacks, ran one headline. Anesthetic, uh, anesthetic prowler on the loose, ran another. State hunts mad gasmen, groggy as Londoners under protracted aerial blitzing. This town reeled today under the repeated attacks of a mad anesthetist. <laughs> a mad anesthetist. <laughs> Who has sprayed a deadly nerve gas into 13 homes and knocked out 27 known victims. Wow. The MO seemed consistent enough. Citizens would smell a sickly sweet odor and fall ill, often becoming briefly paralyzed from the waist down. On several occasions, a tall, dark figure was glimpsed leaving the scene. That's so specific. Consensus held the gasser to be male, but one woman, Bertha Birch, described the attacker as a man dressed in woman's clothing. In her case, footprints consistent with the popular brand of lady shoe uh, was, uh, were found near the home. One victim claimed to have actually witnessed a blue vapor pouring into uh, their bedroom, along with a motorized buzzing sound suggestive of some kind of industrial machinery. Mm -hmm. But by far the most outlandish report came from local fortune teller Edna James. Lying in bed one night, she caught a whiff of the gasser's signature odor coming from her kitchen. Creeping through the house to investigate, Edna came face to face, she says, with the perpetrator. Only it wasn't a person. Edna described a gangly ape-like creature with long arms and a hideously <laughs> deformed face. The entity aimed its spray gun at her and doused the petrified woman in a cloud of noxious gas. Needless to say, police didn't feel particularly moved by Edna's claims. Right. <laughs> her I experience... feel like this is a case for Scooby and the gang. <laughs> it kind of feels that way, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, Edna's experience, they conclude, was the product of mass hysteria. A handful of credible, of credible if odd, cases had snowballed uh, in the press to the point where everyone fancied themselves the mad gasser's next victims. Um, case in point, Eaton Paradise called police in a panic after noticing a strong smell pervading her home. Arriving on the scene, police found not evidence of the mysterious malefactor, but an overturned bottle of nail polish. <laughs> <laughs> this being the height of World War II, with Batoon something of an industrial hub for the war effort, fears of Nazi and or Japanese saboteurs running amok in the otherwise nondescript town were not entirely unfounded. German spies committed to wreaking havoc across the U.S. by sabotaging various industrial plants had been captured in Florida just a few years prior to this gas. Uh, this gas outbreak, you recall. Mm -hmm. Mattoon boasted only two police officers and eight patrolmen at the time, leaving them woefully under-equipped to handle the panic. Chief Eugene Cole was inclined to dismiss the 
sightings out of hand as mass hysteria, but nonetheless spared what forces he could to case the streets for anyone up to mischief. A teenage boy was caught tapping on his girlfriend's window in the middle of the night, but later admitted he was only taking advantage of the mad gasser scare to frighten his girlfriend. Authorities administered... What a great fella. <laughs> what an asshole. Right? Um, authorities administered a lie detector test and were satisfied that he wasn't their man, if there was a man to be had at all. The situation spiraled out of control. State investigators soon descended on Mattoon to see what all the fuss was about. Patrol cars raced through the streets, answering call after call after call of supposed sightings. Citizens tailed the patrol cars at speed for the chance to unmask the culprit themselves. This became such a problem that mm -hmm. Police Chief Cole issued a warning that anyone caught chasing a patrol car through the streets of Mattoon would have the book thrown at them. <laughs> Crowds swarmed City Hall daily, demanding to be kept up to date on the case. Others took to forming vigilante groups and patrolling the streets with guns. What? Fortunately, the only casualty of the hysteria seems to have been uh, a particularly jumpy woman's kitchen wall. She'd blown a hole in it with her husband's 12-gauge. Wow. <laughs> as the fringy, as the fringy, as the fringy, <laughs> as, the, as the frenzy reached a fevered pitch, more victims of the mad gasser came forward claiming to have experienced symptoms months prior to the August 31st attack. Most of the victims were women. When pressed why they hadn't come forward before the media circus, most confided that they'd simply been too baffled by their experiences to even know... Yeah, Who'd like call? it wasn't just some freak um, thing. You know, on September 12th, Police Chief Cole released a statement to the press that wouldn't win him any fans. Quote, local police in cooperation with state officers have checked and rechecked all reported cases, and we find absolutely no evidence to support the stories that have been told. End quote. Cole went on to chalk the whole hullabaloo up to mass hysteria and theorized the strong odor had in fact been coming from the Atlas Imperial Munitions Plant just on the outskirts of town. This didn't go well for him. The people of Mattoon <laughs> were up in arms, outraged at having their fears so summarily dismissed. The following day, one paper ran the headline, Citizens Assail Police for Calling Gascara Hoax. Authorities are branded as incompetent. <laughs> Cole. Mass hysteria is not a hoax. <laughs> right, it's well, different. right. Well, you know. But, I mean, nobody wants to be told, right. you're hysterical. <laughs> yeah, right. With so, all these other right, people, right. you're just hysterical. Cole clapped Especially back. women. <laughs> Well, that's where it comes from. Yeah. It comes from. It's it's a it's a, if correct me if I'm wrong, but someone out there in in podcast land, but hysteria is a Latin derivation of the word meaning the uterus, right. and it was thought to like you know. So it's like if you had a uterus, you get hysterical by right. definition. And so, so it's you gotta like, rub oh, one out. Just, and chill oh, out. you think there's a mad gasser gassing you? You're mm. just a woman. Go figure that they wouldn't want to tell anyone about it. <laughs> I know. Weird. It's that like a weird. theme it's that like, continues. Why don't women want to come forward when they know they won't be believed? I don't understand. <laughs> no. So Cole clapped back hard at these headlines. Anyone reporting a gas attack, according to him, must submit to a mandatory medical examination or be subject to arrest. Whoa. As you might imagine, reports dropped off pretty quick. Yeah. Now, Brian Dunning with uh, Skeptoid, a podcast I listened to for this episode, notes that within a few days of the press changing its tone, suddenly there were zero more reports. And so, he writes, within two weeks of its birth, the Mad Gasser of Mattoon became one of the most famous case studies in mass hysteria. The following year, Donald Johnson, an undergrad at the University of Illinois, wrote the only really scholarly article about the episode, The Phantom Anesthetist of Mattoon, a field study of mass hysteria, published in the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology. His most interesting findings were his graphs of newspaper space in square inches compared to the number of reports that came in, showing a very apparent causal effect. If the morning papers de dedicated more space to it, more reports would come in that day. And interestingly, huh. the Mad Gasser was as silent as the newspapers during the initial two-day Labor Day publishing break. 
Huh. Of course, 25 well, maybe reports. Maybe he had things to do. <laughs> it was Labor Day. Maybe it's he had a barbecue Day. to go to. Of course, 25 reports over 13 days is a very small data set, uh, Dunning says, so it's not really valid to call such conclusions definite. But given the lack of evidence to the contrary, most subsequent researchers have agreed that the initial analysis of mass hysteria driven by newspaper reporting was probably the only real cause behind the mad gasser. End quote. That said, not everyone in a position of authority at the time agreed with police chief Cole. Several officers maintained the early attacks at least were legit, and that the subsequent flurry of reports resulted from a combination of overactive imaginations and the general sense of panic sweeping the town via the press. Still, something had happened, at least in the beginning. Representatives from Atlas Imperial refuted Cole's assertion, citing both their recent inspection and the fact that had fumes been coming from their facility, logically their employees would have fallen ill long before the townsfolk did. Right, and it also wouldn't have just affected one person, and then the other person right, in a right, room right. wouldn't right. have, yeah. Now granted, carbon tetrachloride, which the plant had on hand, does give off a sickly sweet odor and can induce symptoms somewhat similar to those reported by victims of the gasser, but Atlas Imperial insisted its stores of the gas were properly housed. And at any rate, it doesn't cause paralysis. Right, that's, uh, that's, that's the a, That's a weird, like, localized paralysis. Yeah. Now, despite Cole's rather cavalier attitude to the whole thing, police did have several suspects under close surveillance, one of whom they'd been watching pretty much 24-7. A guy named Farley Llewellyn lived out of a trailer in his parents' backyard. Antisocial, alcoholic, and presumably closeted, the young man's bizarre habits and caustic interpersonal style isolated him from the general community. According to writer Scott Maruna, who also happens to be a high school chemistry teacher, two things paint Llewellyn in a suspicious light. First, an explosion rocked his small trailer a week prior to the attacks, suggesting mm. the self-styled chemistry enthusiast was experimenting with some dangerous compounds. Also... Math. Also, the Mad Gaster's first victims, at least according to Scott Maruna, the writer of this book, were Llewellyn's first uh, were Llewellyn's former classmates. Oh. Now, whether this is entirely apocryphal remains to be seen. Maruna, alas, doesn't cite any sources in his study, although he does maintain that he kept up a correspondence with uh, the Llewellyn's neighbor, who told him of the man's not-so-secret secret laboratory, and that Llewellyn's parents had him committed in September of that year, after which the attacks seemed to stop. Quote. A small explosion would certainly be consistent with nitromethane, writes Dunning from Skeptoid. It's highly volatile. Um, its high volatility, rather, would also explain why police were able to find no remaining trace of any chemical on the cloth one victim found on her porch or any remaining odor at the victim's residences. Chemical addicts with backyard laboratories suggest compounds other than nitromethane. Uh, and if Maruna's tales of the apocryphal Farley Llewellyn are true, it's not much of a stretch to suggest that he may have been experimenting with it. And coincidentally, that's a drug the Nazis were supplying to many of their soldiers as a stimulant. And so mm. the feared Nazi connection to Mattoon may have mad. had... <laughs> so, yes. So, uh, <laughs> the feared Nazi connection to Mattoon may indeed have had some substance to it after all. As a liquid, perhaps in the cylinder of a flit gun, it is said to smell like geraniums. Hmm. Uh, might an antisocial addict be more inclined to spray a psychoactive drug through the windows of those who had shunned him than a substance like nitromethane with no special uh, uh, expected effects? Who can guess? A cursory search of public records in Mattoon did turn up Llewellyn's in the 1940s, but none matched any of the first names given by Scott Maruna. We have only 
only a third-hand anecdote that even suspected Farley may have been involved, and certainly no evidence. But Maruna's basic explanation is compelling. A real person may indeed have caused the first few attacks with some sprayed, with some sprayed substance, which triggered newspaper reports, which in turn triggered paranoia and hysteria whenever anyone smelled natural gas or anything else over the course of those two panicked weeks. Whether or not Farley Llewellyn or anyone else did prowl the dark streets of Mattoon with a flint gun or something filled with liquid meth or anything else is a question that will remain unsolved, but for the subsequent newspaper-driven frenzy, mass hysteria is indeed a textbook-perfect explanation. Now, in retrospect, the mad gasser of Mattoon is seen as an open and shut case of mass hysteria, not unlike the so-called dancing plagues of the 16th century France, uh, French villages in which villagers were overtaken by the urge to dance in the streets, some dying of exhaustion in the process. I get it. Another precedent to this kind of thing was the so-called London Monster. Now, for several weeks, circa 1788, well-to-do women roaming the London streets in thick petticoats felt certain a lunatic was sidling up behind them and pricking their asses with a pin. <laughs> <laughs> Peekerism, it's horse! called, the sadistic compulsion to gratify oneself sexually by puncturing someone with a sharp object. Nothing kinky. <laughs> Except that it Except is. That. Now, the first reports of the London monster told of a large man shouting obscenities at unsuspecting women on the street and stabbing them in the buttocks. Some reports even claim the attacker had knives fastened to his knees. Yikes. Other accounts reported that he would invite prospect, uh, prospective victims to smell a fake bouquet of flowers and then stab them in the face with a spike hidden within. Hateful. In all cases, the alleged assailant would escape before help arrived. Some women were found with their clothes cut and others had substantial wounds. In two years, the number of reported victims amounted to more than 50. The press soon named the maniac the monster. Descriptions of the attacker varied greatly. Some men even found a no monster club, founded a no monster club, and began to wear club pins on their lapels to show <laughs> that they were not the monster. <laughs> I'm not the monster. <laughs> White knights. Um, <laughs> Londoners. Hashtag white knights, not the monster. <laughs> Londoners were outraged when the uh, Bow Street Runners, the London police force, failed to capture the man. Uh, um, philanthropist John Julius Angerstein promised a reward of 100 pounds for the perpetrator's capture. This is back in the fucking 18th century, mind you. Yeah. Armed vigilantes patrolled the city. Fashionable ladies started wearing copper pens over their petticoats. <laughs> <laughs> there were false accusations and attacks against suspicious people. Local pickpockets and other criminals used the panic to their advantage. They would shout monster at someone they'd just robbed and flee in the resulting mayhem. <laughs> nice. <laughs> in 1790, a 23-year-old florist, Reinwick Williams, was arrested on suspicion of being the monster. After two trials, he was sentenced to six years in prison, but the historians uh, but historians now question whether the conviction was sound. You see, on June 13th, um, 1790, Anne Porter claimed that she had spotted her attacker in, the Saint, in St. James Park. Her admirer, John Coleman, began a slow pursuit of the man who realized he was being followed. When Reinwick Williams, a florist and uh, the man in question, uh, reached his home, Coleman confronted him, accusing him of insulting a lady and challenged him to a duel. He eventually took Williams to meet Porter, who fainted when she saw him. Mm. Williams protested his innocence, but given the climate of panic, it was futile. He admitted that he had once approached Porter, but it had an alibi for uh, many of the other attacks. Magistrates charged Williams with defacing clothing in a crime that the bloody code carried a harsher penalty. Uh, uh, sorry, but let me back up. He admitted that he had once uh, approached Porter, but had had an alibi for several of the other attacks. Mm. Magistrates charged William with defacing clothing, a crime that in the bloody code carried a harsher, pen a harsher penalty than assault or attempted murder. Weird. Right. During the trial... Clothing was more expensive than a person, I uh, guess. It was property. 
And yeah. so it's like, ah, oh, you're, you're, you're threatening the status quo. During the trial, spectators cheered the witnesses for the prosecution and insulted those for the defense. One of the claimed victims confessed that she had not been attacked at all. <laughs> Realizing the absurdity of the situation, the court granted Williams a retrial. In the new trial, Williams' defense lawyer was Irish poet the uh, Theophilus Swift, whose tactic was to accuse Porter of a scheme to collect the reward, Porter having married uh, Coleman, who had received the reward money, despite the fact that a number of alleged victims gave contradictory stories and that his employer and co-workers testified that he had an alibi for the most infamous attacks, Williams was convicted on three counts and sentenced to two years each for a total of six years in prison. He was released in December of 1796. Hmm. Now, historians have speculated whether Williams was the culprit and have even questioned whether the London monster wasn't just an example of mass hysteria similar to the Mad Gaster of Mattoon. Reports of monster-like attacks continue to be reported for several years after Williams' incarceration. All of which is to say, bad actors like the Mad Gasser have a long and established pedigree. In November of 1938, just six years before the people of Mattoon, Illinois, caught their first whiff of mystery gas, Halifax, West Yorkshire, flew into a panic over a mad slasher, a wild-eyed, knife-wielding misanthrope stalking the streets, and not unlike the London monster before him, um, and true to his name, slashing random victims. Reports of the maniac dropped off dramatically after one supposed victim, Percy Waddington, admitted his wounds were self-inflicted. And then there's one of my favorites, the story of Spring-Heeled Jack. But mm. that's another story for uh, another episode. Have we haven't done Spring-Heeled Jack? We have not. Oh, we'll have to do that. Yeah, again. yeah, yeah. Wow. So that that's the good. weirdness that is the mad gasser of Mattoon. I, I, I lean toward the, the theory that it was like some dude that yeah. was like, I'm going to make these chemicals and spray a couple of my old it was school chums. Fuck a Nazi. But then, <laughs> well, he might have sympathized right, that's um, true with the Nazis. But yeah, I think it was some dude. Yeah. And who started so it. And maybe there were like two or three attacks and then everyone else just kind of thought. And then Jumped everyone on. else kind of panicked. Yeah. Well, the, the one in London... Yeah, the, the London stabber, monster, I, yeah. Like, if people's clothes have been cut and they've been stabbed, like, there's more, little more evidence. I find Well, it... in some of those cases, though, that some people found that, like, well, they weren't, like, people, like, someone would just look down at their dresses after having been out in the street all day and realize the rip was there, but they didn't feel it. So, they, who knows? They could Somebody have caught it have... on something yeah. or whatever, but then they've got it in their heads that this guy has gone around stabbing people. Like, oh, my God, I've just been stabbed. Right. You know? Oh my gosh! People, the press makes people very susceptible. Yeah. To all sorts of things, and it's suddenly true. everyone thinks that you know they're they're <laughs> the mad gasser. Right. Yeah, but it's funny. There's several. Uh... <laughs> Couldn't help it. Couldn't help it. Maybe wow. there was some. There is. There is a condition. I'll have to look it up. I should have done that just for the hell of it. But there is a condition where essentially it causes your farts to be so wretched mm. that like people will like vomit in your presence I, there was a guy whose wife suffered from it so much so that she like lost like botched a job interview because like she got nervous she got nervous and farted and you know the suddenly the smell is everywhere and the guy she was interviewing thought we have some there's some kind of septic leak we've got to we've got to evacuate oh, the building no. so she oh, was, no. so this guy's why this uh this the the husband who was an inventor decided you know what i'm gonna invent a special pair of underwear that like filters the smell. That's love, goddammit. That is love. But yeah, but maybe, maybe the mad gas was just someone walking around with really bad gas and, and thought it'd like, be really funny. I'm like, there's an open window. I'm just gonna make their night and <laughs> right in the window. <laughs> or as a peeping tom with bad gas. Right. You know, it's just like, oh, I like to watch people sleep. Every time he gets excited, he gets excited and he just, just out farts. <laughs> and it's blue vapor. <laughs> <laughs> it just has the weirdest side effects. 
Because he, he's on meth. That's meth gas. I mean, sometimes I've smelled farts that are so... Sometimes Genji yeah. farts and I feel oh paralyzed. Oh, my God. <laughs> Genji's farts. And their power... Genji and Gus, their powers combined. Ugh. Like, if they wanted to rob... I could rob a bank with those Frenchies. I want to vomit them. right now thinking about it. They're so strong. My eyes definitely water. The first time Genji farted, I was trapped in... Then I could smell them. I was trapped in a car with them. And I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> what? I Don't... have to get home. What are you doing? <laughs> Okay, so what you got? Okay, so for me this time, I have the curse. Well, here's the thing, because I know that you've had a rough couple of weeks. It's been rough. And I wanted to cheer you up, and that's why I was like, he needs a curse. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. So I'm doing the curse of the Hope Diamond. Oh, goody, 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 goody. Yay. I know a little bit about it, but not much. Yeah, it's good. It's good. So I, my sources are Stacey Conrat with Mental Floss, Wikipedia, of course, an article on Thought Co. by Jennifer Rosenberg, and Richard Curran's lecture series with the Smithsonian. Nice. All right, so the Hope Diamond is one of the most famous jewels in the world Mm -hmm. uh, with ownership records dating back almost 400 years. Its much-admired rare blue color is due to trace amounts of boron atoms, um, which I didn't know. Blue diamonds are the rarest diamonds on Earth, by the way. The current Hope Diamond weighs at 45.52 carats. It's about the size of a walnut. So it's the size of a walnut, but it weighs the same as a certain amount of carrots. That's right. It's a lot of produce illusions. Carrots are very light. Um, Yeah, and it's... uh, (laughs) Baby carrots. I've seen it. I've seen it at the Smithsonian. Oh, yeah? Yeah. There's this whole... That's so cool. uh, Jewelry section. Winston Mm -hmm. special uh, section, which we'll get into why in a second. But um, it's like I went to the Natural History Museum, and on one side is the dead zoo. That's what I like to call it. Where all the animals have been taxidermied, and you go in, and it's like, ah, they're all dead. It's the dead zoo. It's in there. It's, a, uh, it's the most uncomfortable petting zoo in the world. It really is. It's it, I didn't understand. I, I, anyway, but the Hope Diamond was there is my favorite part. Nice. All the jewelry. Oh, my God. Fucking all mm. the jewelry. Okay, so according to legend, the Hope Diamond has had a curse placed upon it, causing misfortune to all who possessed the diamond. It starts in the year... 1666. Oh, not a good year. It's a beastly year, really. When a man <laughs> named Jean-Baptiste Tavernier... Tavernier? Uh, Tavernier. 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 <laughs> Tavernier. Tavernier. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Tavernier. Tavernier. That's what I'm going to say. Just say... Just say... Um, call him... What's it? Jean, Jean-Baptiste Public House. Right. Is that what Tavernier means? Probably. I'm going to say Tavernier. Sounds like it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he made a trip to India. Anyway, he was a big, <laughs> he was a big explorer dude, and he uh, did a lot of traveling. And so while he was there, he stole a large blue diamond from the forehead or the eye of a statue of a of the Hindus goddess, Hindu goddess Sita. Ah. Upon discovering it was missing, the priests put a curse on whoever was in possession of the gem. In 1668... Tavernier sold the ring to King Louis XIV, but not long after the sale, Tavernier came down with a mysterious fever that killed him. On top of that, after he died, his body was ravaged by fucking wolves. Uh, uh, What? Yep, Tavernier is said to be the first victim of the curse of the hope. Well, he's the one who stole it, motherfucker. Right, I mean, that's what you How did his body get... 
torn apart by wolves. Did, like, I don't did the know. mortician just leave the goddamn door open? It was in 1668. I don't Probably. know. In 1673. They, they, they did autopsies in right, the fields. Yeah. In 1673, King Louis XIV had the stone recut, and then it became known as the Blue Diamond of the Crown, or more commonly known as the French Blue. Nicholas uh, Fouquet? F-O-U-Q-U-E-T? Fouquet? Fouquet? Uh, Fouquet? Fouquet? Fouquet. Q-U-E-T? Q-U-E-T. Let me see it. Nicholas Fouquet. Oh, Fouquet. 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 Well, I was way off. Fouquet. Nicholas Fouquet. (laughs) (laughs) Fouquet. Nicholas. Who worked for King Louis XIV is said to have worn the diamond for a special occasion. Shortly thereafter, he fell out of favor with the king and was banished from France. Mm. The king then changed the sentence to life imprisonment. So... Fouquet spent <laughs> fuck 15, it. Fuck it, spent fifteen years in the fortress of Pignerol. Pignerol? Pignerol? P I G. This is so much fun. This is, part, this is part of my gift to you. Uh, this is P I G N E R O L. I have to see it. I can't like spell it. Pignerol. Uh, your guess is as good as mine. Pignerol. Pignerol. I'm gonna keep uh, knocking probably, this on uh, the table. Pignerol. Sure. Uh, <laughs> that's what. God bless you. Sounds like a kind of dessert. Sounds delicious and gross at the same time. Okay, King Louis XIV did not escape the curse either. He died of gangrene, and all of his legitimate children died in childhood except for one. There was so much death in his life that his heir ended up being his great-great-grandson, who took over the throne when he was five years old. King Louis XV would be struck by the curse when his favorite confidant and mistress, Madame de Pompadour, Mm -hmm. died at 42 after contracting pneumonia. Mm -hmm. Within five years, he would lose his son to tuberculosis, his father-in-law, his daughter-in-law, and his wife, who is said to have died from the heartbreak of losing so many loved ones. Mm. The king would die less than 10 years later from smallpox. King Louis the 16th, or the 15th, was succeeded by King Louis the 16th, who, as we know, married and lost his head with Marie Antoinette in 1793. (laughs) It's bad luck. It's bad luck. It's bad luck, right. It was a bad Um, time to be king. It sure was. Before the great beheading, Marie-Louise, Princess de Lamballe, was a member of Marie Antoinette's court and was her closest confidant. It said Marie Antoinette let Marie borrow the diamond once. She was then, Marie-Louise, was killed by a mob. She was apparently hit with a hammer, decapitated, stripped, and disemboweled, among other things. That is overkill. Other defilements. Um, And that's true. She really was. Her head was impaled on a pike and carried to Marie Antoinette's prison window oh, oh. and then next i wrote heads up marie oh god is inappropriate i'm not sorry it needed to be said well, it's been a long time it's not too soon she'd be dead she'd be, she'd be dead now of natural causes that's so right. that's is that the cutoff she point? would think it's hilarious <laughs> <laughs> i know after that bitch knew how to party that's right after that the diamond disappeared until 1812 but it seems the curse wasn't done Wilhelm Falls was a Dutch jeweler who recut the diamond again. His son ended up murdering him and then killing himself. By the mid-1800s, the ring was acquired by Henry Philip Hope, which is where the diamond gets its name. The once-rich Hope family would go bankrupt because of the diamond. (laughs) Greek merchant Simon Maoncharides? Sure. Sure, charades. Maoncharades. (laughs) Later owned the diamond. His curse, he drove his car over a cliff and killed himself, his wife, and his child. Uh. Evelyn Walsh McLean bought the Hope Diamond, even though she knew about the curse. She wore the diamond, and there are even stories that she would affix a jewel to her dog's collar and let him wander around the apartment with it. You would do that. I would. 
But then <laughs> the curse struck. First, her mother-in-law died. Her son died at the age of nine. Her oh. husband left her for another woman and later died in a mental hospital. Her daughter died of a drug overdose at 25, and she eventually had to sell her newspaper, The Washington Post, and died owing huge debts. Oh, wow. Evelyn's surviving kids sold the diamond to Harry Winston to escape the curse. Nine years later, Winston mailed the gem to the Smithsonian for $2.44 in postage and $155 in insurance. <laughs> God. So the Hope Diamond has been on display as a part of the National Gem and Mineral Collection in the National Museum of Natural History for all to see since 1958. Hmm. According to the Smithsonian, the diamond has brought them good luck. But some wonder if the gem has been bad luck for the United States. Oh. I mean, it's possible. Well. But what's the truth behind the curse? You're looking at nearly 400 years of history and a lot of people die in crazy ways over four centuries. That's true. I mean, you're kind of expanding the data set there. Yeah, and almost everyone knows someone who died tragically. On top of that, the curse is said to be any any misfortune. And we all have had misfortunes. Like, nobody gets away. It's not I don't know, but I, I never have. I None. Any. Never, I'm doing never. this story because you've been sad. <laughs> <laughs> so, are we all cursed? Probably. Okay. So, I mean, that's a that's a that's an existential argument that right, I agree isn't with. It? Yeah. yeah. So we're, let's break it down. Okay. What seems extreme? What's a lie? And what seems a little too coincidental? Hmm. Okay. Here okay. we go. First of all, let's go back to the beginning of the story. All right. Back to the beginning. Uh, Jean Baptiste Tavernier did get the diamond on a trip to India. That's fact. However, the story about him plucking the diamond from the head of a statue was actually made up by Pierre Cartier. Uh, oh, Cartier. Uh-huh. We'll get into why in a bit. But that is definitely an actual. <laughs> <laughs> it seems Tavernier most likely did obtain a 112-carat uh, diamond from India, blue diamond, that would eventually become the Hope Diamond. However... It seems that 1666 date is a bit of an exaggeration for devilish effect. Ooh. The most that it's can be choice. said, I know, right? With certainty, is that Tavernier obtained the blue diamond during one of his six voyages to India between the years 1630 and 1667. So he, at the so time, we don't even know when he got diamond. We don't know we when he got it. We just know he got it in that because yeah. he's people talked about it and the mysteries behind it, but he actually fucking went. So he was he was a big deal in his day. Yeah, he, he knew well, anyone that even those days that did that kind of traveling. Yes, was he was known. an explorer. Yeah. yeah. So at the time, India was the only known source of diamonds in the world. That's why we can safely say it's from India. <laughs> they hadn't yet been discovered in Brazil or South Africa. There were all sorts of stories about how diamonds were obtained, stories that went back to ancient times and were retold by the likes of Marco Frick and Polo. Yep. But it was Tavernier who actually went to see the diamond mines first and firsthand and who came back with the fullest descriptions of them. He hmm. also bought hundreds of diamonds, often trading them for pearls that he acquired in the Middle East along the way. Ah. The Indians believed that gemstones had protective powers. Mm -hmm. They did not cut gemstones the way that we do now. Instead, they tended to preserve as much of the stone as they could, only cutting out cracks and other imperfections. This was believed to maximize their ability to protect one from evil influences. I mean, that makes sense. If yeah. You, if, you have a, if you have an object that's, you know, supposedly staving off evil things yeah. you don't want to trim it down exactly and you know a lot of uh crystals are believed to work this way mm. right mm. so basically the idea was that gems absorbed negative influences and contained them in the stone kind of like a pandora's box ah. right? so you need more real estate yes yeah. rulers were rulers in particular wore lots of diamonds yep. and other gems the bigger the better and that would provide them with the most protection 
Other Indians wore smaller talismans with smaller and different gems for the same purpose. Hmm. So it is, it was done. Portuguese, French, Dutch, German, and English dealers and merchants, tra merchant traders, flocked to India to procure diamonds, but no one acquired more gems or made better deals than Tavernier. Hmm. Returning to France after one of those six trips in 1668, he met with King Louis the 14th of France at the Versailles Palace. It was fairly new at the time, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, probably still in the process of being built. Yeah, yeah. It, I think it had just been finished, maybe. It was in the time. It was fresh. Okay. It was still fresh. It was, fr it was fresh. Um, it it was might like have been 30 new, years fresh, It was like but the new fresh. AMC Cineplex opening yes, up. exactly. And you're like, oh, it's just oh. not even a year old yet. Mm. Yeah, it still um, has that new cinema smell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the carpet's still clean. So, so Tavernier was disgusting, though. Ugh. True fact. Like, yes, it was, they would shit in the they corners. Were savages, yeah. fucking savages. savages. All that goddamn money, and they shit in vases. Yes, which in the fucking hall, like the hall. not like they're not like this is a, this is your poop vase, and it's in a special room, no, like because that's basically like, what we have now. But I mean, like it's they were like, oh, there's a vase. I'll just shit in that before yep. I go in to see my friend. Yeah, fucking, it's insane. It's like it's the equivalent it's the of worst taking a dump. Invention ever. In, it's. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be the equivalent of like taking a dump in the plant box in the right. atrium of your building before you go up. Like it's just fucking. Yeah. It's, oh, it's awful. God. So okay. Imagine the smell. Sorry. Ugh. Okay, so Tavernier sold the king the 112 carat blue diamond, along with about 200 other diamonds. Some stories say there was like 1,200. Like he sold a lot of shit to the king. Uh, a big blue diamond like this was incredibly rare, and the king's artist drew a diagram of the diamond to record the acquisition. It was the ah, first ever blue diamond in Europe. Nice. Here's the picture. Okay, so um, Tavernier also did not die of fever soon after selling the diamond. So what he did was he used the diamond to help purchase a noble title for himself, mm -hmm. which is what how nobles were they were buying. Oh yeah, their yeah. their nobility, um, which was a problem for a lot of people, <laughs> uh, as we'll see later. Uh, Baron of Aubon specifically is what he bought when shit started to go south in France. Specifically, he was uh, I believe he was Protestant, and mm. they were going after him after Protestants at the time in France. Tavernier decided it was time for him to get the fuck out, so he ended up in Russia, where he uh... died in Moscow. At the ripe old age of 84. Not bad for that day and age. Yeah. So it seems the curse skipped him. Like he was, he Damn got it. out just in time. He had a shit like ton that. of money. I, when I heard the wolf part, I was like, what? He died of a fever and he got eaten by wolves? That's How overkill. do we know he got eaten by wolves? Like that's, that, just, that's just bad writing. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> now a lot of this stuff, and I can't remember the name of the lady, but there is a book written in the 1920s. 20s, 1930s, I believe. That's about the Curse of the Hope Diamond. And that's where a lot of stuff is from this is from this book. Uh... And so there's a significant portion of it that is not true. But there is a significant portion that is. So okay. Louis the right. 14th was called the Sun King. Mm -hmm. And if you have been to Versailles, you know why. Mm -hmm. He viewed his reign as one of enlightenment, of letting in the light of divine kingship and shitship, apparently. Of letting <laughs> kingship, I don't know. Kingship, um, divine uh, kingship. Okay, there it is. Of letting knowledge and beauty and the arts shine. At Versailles, you can see the glass of chandeliers mm -hmm. are ex exquisitely cut to reflect yep. and refract light. Mirrors and windows, and uh, they use dazzling light yep. to yep. light the architecture and the decor. Louis wanted his diamonds to do the same shit. And actually, and we're pretty glad that he did that because he changed the way diamonds are cut. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh. So 
Yeah. He accumulated the greatest collection of crown jewels in the continent. European gem cutters influenced by, and this is how, he had so many diamonds, and he had all these gem cutters that were influenced by Renaissance ideas of using optics and geometry to manipulate light. Mm -hmm. They came in, they learned how to cut diamonds predictably, and they would alter the stone's reflective and refractive properties, basically to let the light out of the diamond and let it shine, let it shine, let shine. it shine. Never let your light shine down. There you go. So <laughs> Louis XIV had Tavernier's blue diamond cut down from roughly from a roughly shaped 112 carats into a symmetrical, beautiful gem of 67 carats, mm. and it sparkled <laughs> and it shined. <laughs> 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 uh, it was recorded in the Royal Inventory, inventory, and it was renamed the French Blue. That's how everybody knew it. It was mm. the French Blue. It was valued at about $3.6 million in today's currency at the time. Whew. Louis XIV wore it simply from a ribbon hanging around his neck or in a brooch. Mm. That's it. That's how he wore it. <laughs> but what about his curse, right? Well, Louis wow. XIV was known as the Great King as well as the Sun King, and he reigned for 72 years and 110 days. The Seems longest like a recorded very reign, yes. Yeah. Right. The longest recorded reign of any monarch in any sovereign in a sovereign country in Europe ever. Hmm. Not too bad. Yes. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth might be coming in on it. I don't know how long she's reigned. Um so 14 had, well, Louis Fourteen had six children with his first wife, Maria Theresa of Spain. And yes, all of those children, but one died. When she died, he said she had never caused him unease on any other occasion. Oh. Sweet, right? Uh, also, keep in mind, he had a series of mistresses and had at least 13 documented children with four different women. Very typical of, uh -huh, of very, nobility. Very, right then. And he had more mistresses like... than just that. Those are just the ones he had documented children with. <laughs> <laughs> he was making houses, yeah. separate houses he, he, in nobility, yeah. yeah. He got around. So, he got around. He was like, I'm going to be the new Father Abraham. That's right. As many sons. <laughs> Father Louis. Uh, Maria Theresa actually died in 1683 from an illness, although it's it was said she had a very painful death. Mm. Their son, yet another Louis, died in 1711 so she didn't die from heartache at his death or mm. the deaths of people okay. uh louis died from smallpox at age 49 so still he's, it was youngish but not well not for the time not for the time the fact that that which makes it old. more impressive that louis you know was there for 79 years well, that's well, so, years. Uh, well that, but again that just kind of expands the data set like he lived so long for the time that uh -huh. of course he's gonna know a lot of dead people exactly exactly and so to me, I feel like Maria Teresa had it worse. So Sounds like it. maybe I should look into some Spanish curses for her. I don't know. Because yeah, there, there's a whole history there with her being from Spain and what mm. this what the alliance was supposed to be. And it fell apart and went Ugh. mistresses. And, Oof. Um, Oof. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> and one of the kids, like, watched one of the kids. She ended up becoming his main mistress after, uh, um, what's it, the, Madame de Pompadour, after mm -hmm. she died. And it's just, it's, it's fascinating. The whole story, I could have gone on and on about right. it, but I'm Ugh. trying to stick to the, the history diamond. of like monarchies is fascinating. <sighs> so yeah. And, and when you have like these, um, courtesans or, you know, right. whatever mistresses that <laughs> side pieces were Royal so side pieces. influential in yeah. governing, it was, it's just fascinating to me. So anyway, it's, it's crazy to think yeah. of how different what is, it was back then. Cause it was, it was an accepted thing. It was yes. not something they hid. Mm -hmm. It was like, and oh. actually, Marie and one of the mistresses got along really well. Mm -hmm. And she really, like, they were friends. So, anyway, about <laughs> Nicholas. Crazy. 
Fouquet. Fouquet. I think it's Fouquet. Fouquet. I think it's Fouquet. Fouquet. I think that T is, is enunciated. I think I'd want to say Bouquet. That's why I'm saying Fouquet. <laughs> Fouquet. Yeah. Fouquet. Because it's spelled the same. It is, kind of. Yeah. But I think it's um, Okay. Fouquet. Okay. Anyway, he was the okay. superintendent of finances in France from 1653 until 1661. Right. Basically, the banker to the king. Mm -hmm. There is no record that he had the diamond, so that seems shady to me. But what he did do was piss him off <laughs> uh -huh. by trying to outclass him. Yes. Yeah. His story is very interesting. Uh -huh. He was powerful, and the king was in his mid to late 20s at the time. The idea that Nicholas was cursed comes from statements saying he took ownership of the diamond from the king, but there's no record of it. And I find that very difficult to believe. The king doesn't buy and document the specific, this special jewel just to let his banker take it from him. Mm -hmm. That's a big slight. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they were part of the royal jewels. Mm -hmm. So if you're not... So he wouldn't have yeah. been like, hey, why don't you take this? Why don't this? you take this? Merry yeah. Christmas. Um, and and, and he, Nicholas wouldn't have been like, I'm taking that. So it was Nicholas's rival that turned the king against him, mm -hmm. not the diamond it just doesn't make sense to me that it's the curse it's written in a book that also communicates other falsehoods so i'm giving this one an actually as yeah. well yeah, yeah, yeah. but on a side note after being influenced by someone who wanted to take power nicholas also wanted louis the 14th wanted to take nicholas out mm -hmm. a lot of shit went down and there was a trial for embezzlement but public opinion was with nicholas so he was sentenced to banishment Yep. Louis didn't like that though so he had him imprisoned by his musketeers in 1664 Fuck it. <laughs> was taken to the prison fortress of Pignerol, Pignerol or whatever, to the fort to prison. Pignerol. Um, yeah, there you go. For life, he was sentenced. And that is where Eustache Dogger, the man identified by historical research as the man in the iron mask, mask, but whose name was never spoken or written, served as one of Nicholas's valets. Yeah. Numerous people actually think Nicholas was the man in the iron mask as well but that will have to remain a mystery. Ooh. So moving on. So it's just like what I found doing this research was how much history this diamond was really a part of. Yeah. You know, there was it, no curse, but like it was just, it was like the Forrest Gump. Right. Oh. Exactly. It was. <laughs> the finely cut jewel. Yes. The mute witness to so much fascinating history. Yeah. And it, it really is. So then you go to Louis XIV's great grandson became the next official Louis. He lived a long life, yeah. so yeah. you know it, it is not unheard of that his son and his grandson would have died, because yeah. they both had kids. So Louis the Fifteenth succeeded That's at one age of the five. They had so many kids is because the 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 survival rate was so low. They were trying mm -hmm. to you know better the yeah. odds for them for their for their line. So when people are like, oh well, what did we do before vaccinations? This yeah, this, this is what we did. We this. had a whole bunch of kids we because the majority of them were going to die. Yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, God, it's true. <laughs> so, but it's true. It's true. It's so true. So 15 succeeded at the age of five and ruled for almost 59 years. Another long Very serving long. monarch. Very long. Louis put the 15th, Louis the 15th put the diamond into an elaborate pendant. And by all accounts, it stayed on in that pendant until after the monarchy was guillotined. Calm down. We're good there. <laughs> oh, I know. So the, oh, oh. the assembled nothing pendant. Kinky, nothing nothing kinky. kinky. Just erotic. <laughs> Erotic guillotine. Um, okay, so the assembled pendant included a red spinal of 107 carats shaped as a dragon breathing covetous uh. flames, as well as 83 red painted diamonds and 112 yellow painted diamonds to suggest a fleece shape. Marie Antoinette was known to reset a lot of the crown jewels, but there's no record she touched that pendant, which means she probably didn't loan it out to her friend either. Mm. They... they uh, they kept ma major records in dealing with the crown jewels. So, you know, here's a, 
drawing of what it would have looked like yeah. a picture of i think they redid it and that's what it would have yeah. looked like it's stunning it's it's so gaudy as fuck but it's so cool looking like yeah. look at all that and it's yeah it's that's not something you just have laying on a bureau and be like no. oh hey here you can buy this for you can have that yeah, yeah no yeah no it would have been a really big deal so mm-hmm. of course louis the 16th and marie antoinette were beheaded which is pretty shitty indeed however is that because of the curse of the hope diamond or the Habsburg curse. Marie Antoinette uh, yeah. was a Habsburg. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And that would be curse or curses. Yeah. Because there were two. Yeah. One had to do with a lot of ravens. And the other was a woman. And so we'll have to save that curse for another time. Oh, it was also I fascinating. I was like, I have to step away from the Habsburg curse. And the Habsburg lit. Let's be real. Okay, so... <laughs> After the French Revolution, the crown jewels were put into a warehouse, publicly exhibited, and then in September 1792, stolen. Mm-hmm. When Napoleon later became emperor of France, he swore to recover all of the French crown jewels, including the blue diamond. The French blue. The French blue. But he failed. He could not find the French <sighs> blue. The French blue diamond went missing for some 20 years until a smaller 45 carat blue diamond turned up in London in 1812 in the possession of an English diamond merchant named Daniel Eliasson. So something to keep in mind, this is a fucking huge blue diamond. It's yeah. super rare. Mm-hmm. Immediately people thought there's nowhere else this diamond could have come from. Right. So Elias Eliasson did not say where it came from, but there was speculation at the time that it was cut down from the French blue immediately. Incidentally... The date that it reappeared was almost exactly 20 years after the theft of the French blue, just as the statute of limitations for the yeah, crime Yeah, I was just saying, like, I'm um, smart to, so, like, let's yeah. wait for the statute. Just and then, hold on to it until What then. a great, like, thieving heirloom to give uh-huh. to your grudge. Like, 20 years from now, this shit is going to pay for your life. Right. Yes. And Eliasson. <laughs> uh, so the 45 blue carat blue diamond as drawn in the document of the time is the same one that is, on, is in the Smithsonian today. Mm. In 2005, the Smithsonian published a year-long computer-aided geometry research, which officially acknowledged that the Hope Diamond is, in fact, part of the stolen French blue crown jewel. It is the same diamond. They used all the drawings and the documents and yeah. compared them all, and it matches. Whoa. So that's the same fucking diamond. There's no doubt about it. Oh, that's so cool. Eliasson sold the blue to British King George the Fourth, who bought it yeah, yeah, to celebrate yeah. defeating Napoleon. <laughs> so you think about Napoleon wanted that French blue. I'm going to uh-huh. get all the the jewels back. Yeah, yeah. And George is like, I just fucking beat you, and now I bought this diamond you wanted. Deal with it, oh my right? God. Second. So <laughs> it was a trophy. He was yeah, buying a trophy. Absolutely. So he clearly thought it was from the French Blue at the time. It was commonly assumed. Uh now, George. Well. Oh, good old George. Turns out <laughs> the country turned on him for spending so much of their money in the Napoleonic Wars. Yep. To be fair, he was a spoiled rich kid to start off with. Mm-hmm. But he spent so much money he bankrupted the throne. And this was a pattern of his. Yep. The only reason he married his second wife was because the city or the government was like, if you do this, we will pay off all of your debts. It's the second time he did something so he could get all of his debts paid yep. off. And so, like, he agreed to something, I think, allow Catholicism. And uh, because they were like, if you do, if you agree to this, we'll pay off all your debts. So he, this yep. is a pattern he was in. Yep. He would spend, yep. spend, spend, yep. and then somebody would come in and take care of it. 
at this point when he's on the throne, nobody's taking care of it. He he hated his second wife. And it was so uh, bad huh. that when she died, she said on her deathbed that she thought he had poisoned her. Wow. That's how much he hated her. Isn't it, it, when he was coronated, he did not name her queen. Oh, she wasn't even invited. Wow. Like, it, he was an dude, asshole. He was a real asshole. And George um, III was his grandfather, I believe. George III that was the I king, so. uh, the, the mad king. That, that, yes. Um, and so yeah. we're talking, it ran and he was, so George IV was the last of the Georgian kings. Yes. He suffered from severe mental illness as well. As Didn't he? Uh, yes, George III yeah. did. Um, there was the king during the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's why. I, I think during fourths, the fourths reign is when uh, that creepy ass like throat slash murder took place. We talked about a little bit um, on one episode. I can't remember now. It's all turns out that one of the val- a valet who had a history of oh, mental illness. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, tr- like they thought he might have like tried to slash his own throat or something because right. he goes yes. one of the ghosts in that in the, particular palace. In the like it was a locked door mystery. <sighs> yes, it starts uh, with an H. Yeah, yeah, not Hampton Court. Not Hampton um, Court. Because that's oh. an, uh, I don't think. Well, it might have been Hampton. Court. I thought it was Hampton George Court. George the Third didn't like Hampton Court, but I think George the Fourth. We went back there. Went back there. I think it I could think have been that right. he was yeah, yeah. sent there too. Uh, there's a lot of that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that so, was a, so George the Fourth had just a fucking cursed reign in general. He did he not. He was come a bad from, ruler. He was a terrible yeah. fucking ruler. And of course the mental illness thing. <laughs> he was king when the United States went AWOL. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's said he died of obesity, but keep in mind he was also addicted to laudanum and suffering mm-hmm. from gout. Mm-hmm. Dropsy, which is like super swelling for those yep. who don't know. You yep. poke yep. your finger in and your it sticks in. It's gross. Um, uh, and uh, possibly porphyria, which yep. is a disease that affects the nervous system. Yep. Attacks yep. last from days to weeks. And the symptoms of an attack include abdominal pain, chest pain, vomiting, that's what confusion. The third, that's what George III suffered so from. So George IV had the same thing. Yep. And, yep. Uh, and so that's most likely what killed him because he, he his, was paralyzed by the end. It turned his poo blue. Did oh, you know that? Different French blue. Different French blue. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know that. British blue. Right. Well, and, and all of the... the. It's true, though. That's true. Yeah. Like, there was a doctor that was obsessed with fecal matter as as a... Because this was back in the time, especially during George III, you know, generation before mm-hmm. the fourth, obviously, two generations, rather. Um, a doctor did not, like, especially to a royal person, did not conduct a physical. It was, right. it was, you were not allowed. You could only do what the king or queen permitted you to do. Mm-hmm. Like, you could not so much as take his majesty's royal pulse without the approval. And so mm-hmm. this one crazy doctor got the notion of, like, can I just see your stool samples? And, <laughs> like, so he, he had compiled this, I forget his fucking name, but he compiled this whole catalog of what different like stool samples looked like coming from different healthy or not healthy bodies and mm-hmm. he discovered that George the Fourth's or George the Third's poo was blue and he was like this is this means something this is not and all his doctor friends were like ah, it's neither here nor there that's blue blood that's yeah that's right it's just it's healthy it's healthy blue blue, blue it's a good it means it means is is flushing out all the toxic or whatever like right, it was just yeah. like doctors just didn't fucking know what they were doing back yeah. then they were so like, like let's put smoke up your ass with a bellows and we'll put this leech on happens. your gums and will read poetry to you. That should uh, that should yeah. help the fever go down. Right. Yeah. Well, whatever three had, four got. Yep. Um, yep. And yep. you know, it's kind of like if any of the kings were cursed. Well, it could be headings a really big deal too. But it's, <laughs> it's what's not, worse, it's losing your head or losing your mind? What's the difference? I mean, really. Well, one's quicker. That's true. 
as far as we know. Um, it depends on how far you But it also, it's, all that stuff is just an occupational hazard. It's true. It's being, true. You know, of a, line, a, a family that, of, of a line that's kind of vaguely incestuous. Yeah. And then a lot of bad life choices mm. lead to nightmarish endings. That's yeah, life. That's, that's I don't know. So true. Again, I think we're all just cursed. Yeah. It's true. We're moving on. But We're not all on. of us get a diamond. It's true. Not a big old sparkly one. In 1830, George's executor, the Duke of Wellington, had to sell the blue diamond to pay off his debts. He sold it to Henry Philip Hope, the great diamond collector. Mm. That is where the Hope Diamond gets its name. Okay. Uh, again. So the Hope family was rich, like filthy fucking rich. <laughs> Richer than kings. So fucking rich. They'd aided American colonial commerce and helped finance the Louisiana Purchase. They were fucking rich. Jesus Christ. <laughs> they accumulated land, castles, Dutch and Flemish paintings, and other riches. In 1887, the diamond was inherited by Lord Francis Hope, Henry Philip Hope's great-grandnephew. Francis bet badly on horses, business enterprises, and an American showgirl wife, Mary May Yohe. Yohe? I'm not sure how you say it. May. Uh, <laughs> May. He lost his fortune and his wife, and after a series of court cases, was allowed to sell the Hope Diamond. And she also talked about the curse at that point. She was mm. talking about how the diamond was cursed and all the bad things that happened, and she wanted to make a movie about how it was cursed. And so she was definitely profiting off yeah, of it. She was trying to sell this idea. Mm-hmm. Just trying to do. She was doing it for the likes. Yes, in the late 1800s, <laughs> the early 1900s. <laughs> so again, we have another rich kid who never learned he couldn't have everything, which is kind of a curse in its own right. Yeah, that's true. God. It was purchased by the curse of the silver spoon. Mm-hmm. It was purchased by New York jeweler Joseph Frankel's Sons and Company in 1901. Frankel's hoped to make a quick sale and big profit as they put up much of, the, much of their business capital to buy the Hope Diamond. Instead, the overvalued rock sat in their vault. In 1907, in the 1907 Bankers Panic, basically a recession, mm -hmm. it took a toll on the company. Frankel's was diamond rich, but cash poor and going bankrupt. Mm. And this is where the stories really started about the diamond being cursed. Mm. In 1908, the financial pages of the New York Times noted that the gym was responsible for Frankel's failure. Other newspapers, and it was, because they spent so much money and invested yeah. it, and they couldn't get that money back. It, it was. Uh, but that's, that's again, a bad business bad decision. decision. Yes. Yeah. Other newspapers in Washington and London picked up the story and made it increasingly elaborate, speaking of the baleful influences and power of the mysterious rays that emanated below the glittering surface of the diamond that unleashed evil upon all those who possess it. These stories... <laughs> this diamond must be thrown into Mount Doom. Oh, uh, it's the ring. It's the, <laughs> exactly. Give it to Frodo or whatever the fuck. Okay, so it's their precious. Uh, these stories blamed the execution of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette Hope's bankruptcy and divorce, and Frankel's collapse on the malevolent influence of the blue diamond. Now, to be fair, if you shine ultraviolet light on the diamond, it does glow red for several minutes. <laughs> Fucking blood red. Do you That's see so this cool. shit? Yeah, it's uh, so cool. And it, <laughs> it's so cool. It doesn't seem like any other blue diamonds are as red. It has a very, very specific color. Mm. Uh, there's a science to it, which I won't get into, but it's logical. And the stone's phosphorescence might lead to being able to fingerprint diamonds. Mm. Which is fucking cool. That's badass. I mean, who says a, for a curse can't follow logic, though? Motherfucker glows red. That's the coolest <laughs> shit. Okay, and it stays that way for a little bit, so they'll shine. The, so it like retains that it retains that energy that or light. whatever. That yeah, light. That's and so reflects fucking it. Fucking cool. Yeah. So um, 
at, and, and to me, it seems after the stone became accepted as a curse, it really started working as a curse. Mm. So in oh, 19- that's that's fucking true. Once right. people, like kind of, it's a mass hysteria. Type it is. Thing. It is. In 1908, Turkish Sultan Abdul Hamid II purchases the Hope Diamond reportedly for four hundred thousand dollars in 1908. That's like a billion trillion dollars. dollars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was the 34th and last sultan to exert effective control over the Ottoman Empire. Hmm. He massacred Armenians and Assyrians, so he had some karma going on anyway. Right. He only Sounds like the he stone, was the goddamn curse. Right? He only owned the stone for a year, but in that year, the Young Turk Revolution broke out, which directly led to his fall. The sultan sold the ring the following year. The Hope Diamond was finally sold at a bargain price to other diamond dealers. Now, what's interesting is he, it was probably during the revolution and he probably didn't have access to his money that he probably sold it. Yeah. But when he died, he had like a billion dollars. So, you know, there was a big court case for his kids trying to get some of the money and... He died with a billion dollars. Again, the curse doesn't sound all that efficient. Right. Um, But he did, you know, bring down that uh, monarchy. Right. Sultanarchy. I don't know how that works. Anyway, the Hope Diamond was finally sold at a bargain price to other diamond dealers, finally coming to the Cartier brothers in Paris. Pierre Cartier was enchanted with the novel The Moonstone, written decades earlier by by Wilkie Collins. By Wilkie Collins. I knew you were going to mention that. Sorry, it's one of my favorite, like, Victorian novels ever. I fucking love that book. Okay, so, for those who don't know. Also very famous for another book called The Woman in White. Oh, bitches in white! Uh, It's all a big circle! The first bitch in white was written by Wilkie Collins. All right, that's good. Sorry, sorry, continue. Sorry, I was just really excited. story... A large yellow diamond had formed the eye of an idol of a Hindu de- deity in a temple in India. The diamond literally embodied the power of the god. There it rested until it was looted by a Muslim conqueror and taken to his treasury. Then, years later, British colonial soldiers looted the treasury in battle, taking the diamond back to England. There, tragedy, murder, kidnapping, insanity followed the possession of the ill-gotten gem. The god had cursed the stone. An evil force would emanate rays from the stone and strike misfortune upon all who owned it until the gem was properly returned to the deity back in India. Finally, Indian Hindu priests retrieved the diamond and brought it back home. Now, this story by Collins was basically a cautionary tale about divine or supernatural payback for the immorality of colonialism. Well, it was. And at the end of the day, it's not the diamond's not cursed. It's the decisions people make trying uh-huh. to obtain the diamond that fuck them up. Mm-hmm. And and it's ultimately like it's uh, the belief in the curse is what kind of fuels the mystery. But at heart, this is incidentally, because you know my obsession with detective fiction, this right. is one of the first novels ever written that features a detective oh, nice. like as one of the principal characters who kind of unsolved the riddle in kind of Sherlockian, what we now call Sherlockian fashion. And he's like an old retired detective who's brought into this rich family that's mm. like, you know, and he's like, well, I know, you know, what's really going on here. And they're like, then he tells someone like, fuck you, get out. And yeah. then he, he comes back in the story. But yeah, so it's like he, the, he kind of dispels the idea of the curse in the, yeah. like that it's a specific curse. And it's like, no, it's just because we, you know, it's colonialism did this mm-hmm. shit to us. And it's like, not, it's kind of basic. It's karma more than a curse. Right. Essentially. I fucking love the book. Well, that's such an interesting theme. Uh-huh. And you uh-huh. and, and Pierre Cartier have that in common. So there you go. Uh-huh. So these were, there were the historical and fictional elements that Cartier combined when he approached Evelyn and Ned McLean in 1910. Cartier had already had a relationship with the immensely wealthy couple. He had sold them the Star of the East, a 94.8 carat white diamond Jesus. for $120,000 again in 19. 19- 10 uh, or 1909 when they vacationed in Paris after their marriage. 
Cartier applied the Moonstone story to the Hope Diamond, telling the couple it was cursed by a Hindu god, and embellished a bit more, blaming the French and the Turkish and other revolutions on its baleful, mm. baleful, baleful influence. Baleful. That is clearly a word that I've taken from the internet. I don't say it. <laughs> um, Shitty-ass influence. Okay. <laughs> Evelyn was entranced by Cartier's story, and she decided in 1911 to go ahead and buy the diamond for $180,000. God, to just have this kind of money lying around mm -hmm. then. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so let's at this go, point, honey, they're 300. Honey, let's go buy a cursed diamond. Okay, love. Like, who the fuck? $300,000 on two rocks in 1910 and 11, right? Like, Jesus fucking what? Christ. The McLeans were among the richest families in the United States, owning banks, real estate, and the Washington Post. <laughs> McLean, Virginia, is named after the family. They own some of Washington's most luxury, luxurious and valuable real estate, in addition to homes in Newport, Rhode Island, Bar Harbor, Maine, and Palm Beach, Florida. They exemplified mm. the later years of the Gilded Age, using, using, flaunting, and even, some would say, wasting their gigantic fortune on over-the-top, conspicuous consumption. Oh, yes. Evelyn wore the diamond at extravagant parties, paraded the diamond around Washington, and made much of it pub uh, publicly until 1919. It was then that her 10-year-old son, Vincent, was struck down and killed by a car near their Washington, D.C. estate. Mm -hmm. Newspapers proclaimed, well, maybe that the Hope Diamond really was cursed. And they wondered who would be struck by the diamond's malignant rays. It was as if all the negative energy that was locked up in the uncut diamond had now been unleashed upon its possessors because of the cutting. Pandora's box, so to speak, had been opened. Hmm. The story, uh, along with the curse, appealed to the public and resonated with other curse stories of the era about the Titanic and Egyptian mummies. The yep. idea was that yep. somehow the wealthy who had flaunted their wealth by obtaining the treasures of others were now getting their comeuppance from higher supernatural powers. The curse story was only amplified by ensuing events. Ned and Evelyn separated in 1929 after Ned cheated on her. Then the family lost the Washington Post in bankruptcy in 1932. Ned McLean was overtaken by mental illness and was sent to a sanatorium where he died in 1941. Mm. Evelyn actually pawned the Hope Diamond in 1930. This is an aside, actually. In 1932, to order in order to hire an investigator to track down the kidnappers of the Charles of Charles Lindbergh's baby. Uh -huh. So, like, this diamond has done everything. It's, it's been just, everywhere. It's, oh, my God. Yeah. Such a story of existence. Mm -hmm. The remaining money was to be used for a possible ransom. Wasn't needed, however, and she got the diamond back. Over the years, Evelyn used the diamond, and, too, she tried to trade it for the Washington Post. She tried to sell it, and she couldn't. Because <laughs> we were like, nah, it's cursed, bitch. Yeah, they auctioned it off. Which is embarrassing for a family yeah. of that stature. So over the years, Evelyn used the diamond for mm. charitable purposes as Washington's grand social maven. Seeing it or holding it was the prize for buying a raffle ticket or attending a benefit. She lent the diamond to brides to wear as something blue. And something borrowed, I'm sure, as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> something old, something new, something borrowed, something cursed. Blue, Ew, blue, blue, blue. She even had her great Dane, Mike, this is true, wear the diamond around his neck. I love it, the idea of this great Dane floppy face great dame i love that she had spent like a hundred and twenty thousand dollars 180 on the hope sorry one hundred and eighty thousand dollars which is like a bazillion in the in that time yeah. and it ends up around the neck of the dog right like it's right. such a it's such a and like she, shunned mean, item by then yeah but then too she did do a lot of, of good with it she did do yeah. a lot of charity work with it um she had a tendency to poo-poo the curse at times and other times she wondered if the curse was payback for the money and time misspent and frittered away mm -hmm. in 1946 another tragedy struck evelyn's daughter evie died of a drug overdose at 25 mm. 
Evelyn died in 1947 at age 60, and the estate sold Evelyn's jewelry, including the Star of the East and the Hope Diamond, to New York jeweler Harry Winston in 1949. Mm. Yeah, I'll say that's pretty rough. Harry Winston hmm. then sent the collection on a nine-year goodwill tour of the United States. He shared it for limited showings at museums, like it was at the Louvre for a while. Yeah. It, was, it was all over. And it raised money. He raised money with it the same way that Evelyn did. Hmm. Uh, slutty diamonds. No, <laughs> no judgment. Pimping out them diamonds. Right. Just, you know, do your thing. Okay, a decade later, the diamond came to the Smithsonian. When it did, it was given an acquisition number, just like every other Smithsonian object. The Hope Diamond is number 217868. It came with a setting crafted by Cartier and 16 one to one and a half carat diamonds surrounding the main blue stone and a necklace of 42 diamonds set in platinum. The Hope Diamond itself weighs 45.52 carats. Most of the other characters said to have owned the stone never existed. Mm. My favorite is Wilhelm Falls. <laughs> now if you think about it there is a scream it's very common known as, as the, the wilhelm, wilhelm scream yeah and he sounds as though he is falling yeah so the wilhelm falls sounds very interesting and i wonder yeah. if those are connected at all hmm. um hmm. but he never existed well, so, and the wilhelm scream is old it's from the very early days of, yes, of sound pictures sound. so it's been around for since mm -hmm. at least the 30s yeah right that yeah. name yes so so interesting. it's interesting right huh. um huh. The Smithsonian does not believe in the curse. At least they don't believe it's affected them. As curator Jeff Post says, since the arrival of the Hope Diamond, the National Gem Collection has grown steadily in size and stature and is today considered by many to be the finest public display of gems in the world. For a Smithsonian, the Hope Diamond has obviously been a source of good luck. Yeah, well. Currently, the Hope Diamond is worth around $350 million. Oh. And I'll change the settings to, if there's like an event, yeah. I'll change the setting of the dial. Oh, God, it's oh, just fucking gorgeous. Oh, oh, um, I do love jewels. No, <laughs> no, I do too. I do too. I think the real curse isn't the diamond, but it's the disposable income that allows people to spend so much money on a sparkly thing. It's yeah. wasteful. Mm -hmm. So it's not. It's no wonder that these people had a tendency to not understand financial responsibilities and the consequences of their own fucking actions. Mm -hmm. Almost everyone affected by the stone was ridiculously wealthy. They lived in a completely different world than the vast majority of humans. It seems to me the real curse is living so high that the only direction you're left to travel is down. Ooh. That being said. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> Rumor has it that the mailman who delivered the package bearing the diamond had his share of cursed luck. James Todd suffered a crushed leg in an accident soon after. He also sustained a head injury in another accident and his house burned down. There are other reports that his wife and his child died in an accident as well. Now, I can't find anything to verify the story, but I also don't find anything that disputes it hmm. either. Hmm. It's interesting. Normally, you can find stuff that people are like, that's not fucking true. I didn't find anything like that um, in my research. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I just have limited time. So <laughs> what that makes me wonder, though, is it's not necessarily that the Hope Diamond affected him. He's a mailman that's delivering to the Smithsonian. That is his route, right? It's right, not right, arbitrary. Right. He's always delivering to the Smithsonian. Mm. So perhaps he was affected by a different curse. Maybe another, some other cursed object. Yes. So that is the a lot of the history. That was so great. It became more of just what this ring has 
been around yeah. for the past 400 years and how it's crazy the history that's connected to it is. Yeah, how many, how many objects like that in the world that exist that are still around that have seen that mm -hmm. much history mm -hmm. that you can go and look at right yes. now if you, if you, if you want to. You wanted to. Like that's, that's fascinating to yeah. me. Wow. Yeah, I got totally lost in it. I loved no it. Shit. Such a good story. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So then that's the thing is it becomes the precious, right? It becomes that yeah. representative. It's Sauron and blah, 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 blah. Right, but, right. Um, the people just, they, sh they shouldn't be buying. <laughs> they shouldn't spend $400,000 no. on a on a diamond. Like, oh my God. Could you say, and especially like, it, it's, it's. In the, at the end of the day, they're just stones. They're, they're just, just rocks. rocks. They're just rocks that we are. They're really pretty assigned. rocks. They're beautiful, but they are rocks. But they, we assign these ridiculous, like we just we uh, imbue them with this kind of power and luster. That's mm -hmm. like just they don't do anything. They just no. kind of you know they're not worth that kind of money. They don't power cities they don't mm -hmm. they don't feed people i mean i mean i don't know the economics professor could probably say well yeah but you that money is out there whatever but the point is it's it's just weird to think of how much money it, it, people have always spent money on weird shit yes. and the richer they are the more the more conspicuous their consumption they're like right. oh yeah I, look it's it's a way of saying yeah i don't need this but yeah. it still costs me that much money that's how rich i am yeah that i blow this on stupid shit right like it's not there's a, I guess there's a kind of, um, I forget who coined the term. It's called affluenza, where mm, like yes. someone's it was just a like has a thing where it, judge in Texas. That's right. That's right. Um, they're and just it's so just, rich just, they don't know any better. Well, they just they, they're so rich. They're like, well, like let's just do something fun. They're just rich and strange and bored. Yeah. And they just kind of go and they're so cut off that they're like, oh, I mean, what else am I going to use this money on? Really? And yeah. Like, really, I can think of a lot of shit you could use that money on, mm -hmm. and you're going to use it on a goddamn diamond yeah and they and just and that's the thing about rich people they just kind of shunt their money back and forth between each other mm -hmm. yeah exactly <laughs> you <know>? yeah well <laughs> it'd, and you think it'd be great too, if they were like hey i'm gonna buy the hope diamond and that's you know and that that money is gonna go back <laughs> into the yeah. economy and like you know um you know be a shot in the arm for that infrastructure but it's not it's like hey i just give this other big bazillionaire uh you know a few million extra dollars mm -hmm. so i could have his or her diamond it's just it's like they're playing this fucking game of tennis and we're all down on the streets just goddamn starving yeah well and you think you know the only thing I think that really is, I think it's a coincidence, but it's that this diamond was a part of the end of three different monarchies. It was the end of the Louis, the French mm -hmm, monarchy. Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. was the end of the Sultan in the Ottoman yep. Empire. It was the end of the Georges. And the monarchy is still there, but that was the end of the Georgian rule right, right, right after right. he died. So that to me is a cool, like it's an interesting coincidence, but I think it's more that well it just happened to be such a valued item so of course mm -hmm. it's going to find its, it's way it's going to be with the most it's going to find its way into the hands of a lot of people whose fates are the same mm -hmm. because that's what happens to ultra wealthy rulers eventually shit topples that yep. gets ruined and they're all gonna i mean i'm sure they had i'm sure if we looked in their coffers and their personal collections we'd find a lot of items that had gone between monarchs for centuries they're yes. like oh oh is it that one so it's not it's not, yeah, I don't think, I think being a monarch or being a person of fabulous wealth, I think that's the curse. Yeah, I do too. I think it so It is too. a curse I would love to have for just a little while. Just like, but just it's... to get some good savings, <laughs> a solid, a solid like retirement thing going. Um, yeah, and it, and that's what it is. It's just, it's just that insane out of touch mm. wealth. And then, uh, and, and Harry Winston, to his credit, uh, he did not donate it to the Smithsonian to get rid of it. He donated it because he wanted the U.S. to have a uh, jewelry collection. Mm -hmm. 
And because he donated it, a lot of other people donated these very valuable jewels. So we have them at the Smithsonian and you can go see them today oh, for free. Cool. You just for walk free, in. It's yeah. kind of nice. Everyone can nice. enjoy them. That's right. That's funny. Explain. When my grandmother passed away several years ago, uh, my, my dad's mother, she had a bunch of, like she was crazy about jewels mm-hmm. and gold and stuff mm-hmm. like that. She collected a bunch of it. I love gold. And she, she loved it. And they, um, my she just left a bunch of it to my dad. And my dad was like, I don't want, what am I mm. going to do with this shit? And it, and it was all, cause it was all super gaudy. Like it was, it was yeah. cut the, the way they were cut and set were just super fucking gaudy. But we were all like, well, you know, maybe I'll go to like, I'll go to a jeweler and like, I'll find this guy. Cause they all, a lot of the pieces came with them. Um, um, certificates of authenticity or value, whatever you call that. And um, I brought it to the guy and it was like, they were, despite being real, I mean, these were real like rubies and sapphires mm-hmm. and, and topaz and, and a lot of, you know, fine jewelry, effectively fucking worthless. Yeah. I mean, this entire collection, which she had probably in her lifetime spent $100,000 on over the course of her life, not, yeah. not in one fell swoop, of course, but was worth about eight hundred dollars. Oh my god! At the end of the day, yeah. I'm like, it's just so. It, that's the thing about value like that. It's and it's when it doesn't have intrinsic value. It's just kind of. It's more susceptible to the fluctuations of taste. Mm-hmm. And some would be like the Hope Diamond. That's great, but no one wants it because it's too big. It's too gaudy. It's too this, right. too that. So if tastes change, it's like so. Maybe he had no choice but to like. Well, let me just donate it because it's. It's only interesting now as a relic. No one wants it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, I mean, he knew when he got it that it was a tour. Right, it was going right, to go on tour. Right. He knew that it was for something to share with people, not to. Yeah, not to just keep and. Which could be why he didn't, Maybe. you know, suffer it, and that's why the Smithsonian, you know, because yeah, you know, yeah. they've they've got it. They because he was to... a little more philanthropic. Yes, and uh, it seems like those are the people who what escaped the curse. The people who bought it at discount. Yeah. The other jewelers who bought it at discount. The you know. Right, right. Winston bought. And if you think if, if if the diamond were the were the source of the curse, then you you'd think they'd be more subject. Because mm-hmm. I mean, they're getting it at a discount. They're that's closer. That's closer to stealing it. Right. Than it is to. I'm mean, like you'd think the people that spent the most amount of money would. Well, they get it for a steal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you think, but um, but anyway, so that yeah, yeah. I I got so lost in so many things. I know. It's I was so like, oh my god, what about this? And it's just so all of those different the country, the different countries, and the histories there, and it was just like, oh, oh my god, I could do this all day. So great. Yeah. So great. Thank you. You're welcome. That's really awesome. You're welcome. <sighs> wow. I love it. Now I want to go home and go sleep. I do too. <laughs> I'm so tired, Jamie. I'm I would so like a tired. sandwich first. Oh, me too. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we're leaving tomorrow. We're leaving tomorrow. Yeah. On a plane. Yes. To Laredo. To Laredo. But by the time you hear this, we'll be back. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Yes. Um, um, I don't really have anything else to say. <laughs> <laughs> Remember to come see us in Dallas. Yes. Uh, this coming Saturday. Uh, uh, Saturday the what? What is it? Saturday the 20th? No, hang on. Dates. Oh, look. The dates. I have it on my phone. Wait, I'll tell you. It's not the 20th, because we're in the 20th I know, right shut now. up. Hateful. <laughs> it's me. hateful. And it's hateful, and it's not necessary. January 31st. 31st. Yeah. There we go. We'll be in Dallas. Last in day of the month. Last day Come of the month. Come see us in Dallas. Um, we very much appreciate you guys. Check out the website, goalintentions.com, and all the other shit that's attached to that. You can find it there. Uh, <laughs> I think that's it. Okay. Remember, it's, it's okay, okay to, to sleep, sleep with, with the, the lights, lights on. on.